You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Dane Law is a Coast Guard veteran, social worker, transgender man, kayaker, and a member of Move United's DEI task force. In 2002, Dane was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and found that his passion for paddling could help him on his journey to healing and wellness. He is also an instructor and volunteer with Team River Runner, a Move United member organization. So Dane, I always like to uh, ask my fellow veterans their the, the why question. So why did you sign up? Why did you enlist in the Coast Guard? Um, I think the biggest attraction for me was, um, well, two things, actually. I, I really loved water. My whole life is, you know, growing up, I, I was a competitive swimmer and spent a lot of time, you know, at the beach and at lakes and paddling kayaks and other boats and i just wanted to be around the water i loved it and um and the other thing that was somewhat intriguing was the fact that the coast guard had a little bit different role in terms of what they did compared to the other branches um and it was focused more on law enforcement and search and rescue mm-hmm. and uh, at the time i was really interested in uh pursuing like something in law enforcement. And so that was really attractive to me at the time. Hmm. Yeah. That made, that made sense. So, so you were coast guard all the way, basically you didn't look at other branches at the time. Oh, I considered the Navy, but again, that, that whole, you know, uh, go to possibly go to war versus, you know, maybe save people and, you know, um, do some law enforcement type work was just a little bit more interesting. So, yeah. And why do you think it was when you were younger that you had this affinity for water? What, what, I mean, were you in, how were you introduced to it or what, what do you think drew you to the water? Um, well, I think both my parents, uh, you know, really enjoyed water activities and water sports. Um, my father was a diver and a swimmer and, you know, everything we did as a family, um, was usually around water, you know, (laughs) whether it be camping or boating or fishing, or my father also was really avid, um, uh, uh, I forget what you call them, the, the people that pan for gold, (laughs) um, uh, yeah. So, um, we spent a lot of time, um, at the rivers and he would dredge for gold and um, yeah, it was an interesting hobby I thought, but it it would expose us to a lot of beautiful places and rivers and the mountains and the Sierra Nevadas in California. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so when you, uh, when you enlisted in the Coast Guard, I mean, like obviously like any military, you have some options on what type of, um, jobs or military occupational skill that you have. So what, what did you choose and and why? Yeah, well, (laughs) um, I was a cook 
um, not the most glamorous job or sought after, <laughs> of uh-huh. course. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. It was kind of, uh, I think, a joke to some people in the Coast Guard, you know. Um, and I initially thought I wanted to become an aviation survival man, which is the uh, rescue swimmers that Ooh. jump out of helicopters and save people. And there was a movie uh, uh, about that. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyways, I... I I decided that it would take too long to become a a, a rescue swimmer, and uh, the 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 wait list was really long, mm. and I just wanted to um, you know progress through the ranks, and and so somebody I, when I was doing my time uh, as a dishwasher in the galley, uh, scullery worker, I um, was convinced by some of the cooks that I should consider becoming a cook and um i started thinking about it and it actually sounded quite fun you know like um i could tap into sort of my creative side and i Mm. did a bit of baking and you know i learned a lot of different styles of cooking like ethnic cooking and um it was a, a a really nice challenge for me yeah, and I think maybe of all the military veterans that I've interviewed, you're probably the first cook I have interviewed. So it's a critical, it's a critical component in the military, right? I mean, you, you gotta sure. feed, you gotta feed the masses. So you know, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're either people's best friends or their worst enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Just be a good cook, and you're okay, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so, what was your what was your service time like? How long were you in, and um, and uh, what kind of like different uh, stations did you get to explore? Uh, I, I did four years active duty and then I did about three as a reservist. And mm. um, my duty stations, I, I was never deployed, um, but I had uh, I had several really cool uh, duty stations. I was in Sitka, Alaska mm. on an island. Mm. Um and uh, I was in Northern California at a place called hum- Station Humboldt Bay, Air Station Humboldt Bay. Hmm. And then during my reservist time, I uh, served at a few small boat stations, San Francisco, Portland, and Long Beach. Hmm. Good assignments, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were all really fun and interesting in their own way. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine Sitka would be. How long were you at Sitka? Um, I was there for about eight months. Okay. Yeah, that'd be an amazing place to to be spend a little bit of time at, I think. It was beautiful. I loved <laughs> it. <also. laughs> and uh, how did you, I know that through like adaptive sports, you've stayed connected to water sports and I know you're a big water sports enthusiast. Um, how, you know, how did you find that as a, as an activity post-military? Yeah. So, um, I actually started whitewater kayaking when I was about uh, maybe 18 years old. Mm. Um, and just, just prior to my service and, and I took a lesson or two and then I joined the coast guard and went to basic training. So during, during my active duty years, I, I did paddle quite a bit and um, after that, I was a river guide for about seven summers. And mm. so most of my adult life was, uh, I mean, 
it's an addictive sport and it's, I, I never did it competitively. I did some, uh, outrigger canoe racing in Hawaii, which is a different type of paddling mm-hmm. yeah. and, and paddling of, of a variety of craft have always been, you know, something that's been an interest, but, uh, whitewater kayaking has just become kind of like a, a drug for me, you know, like it's, it, I just can't get enough of it. So it's, it's been on and off throughout my life. And I can explain more, um, in terms of, you know, later in life, how, how it's changed and evolved. Yeah. And, and what you piqued in my interest when you said you were a river guide. So were you, uh, cause I almost did that one summer kind of, kind of when I was in college, you know, I, I lived in West Virginia near the new river and the Golly river. And, and mm-hmm. so, um, almost did that for a summer opted not to at the end of the day, but you know, it's always been a, an interest of mine. So what river were you a guide on? Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, we have some time. <laughs> so this, this was over a span of about 20 years. Um, I primarily started when I was in college after the military uh-huh. and um, I was uh, working on a few rivers on the western part of the U.S. So um, the South Fork of the American was one of the rivers I worked on, and the Deschutes River in Oregon primarily. Although we did a few other rivers as well in the North Pacific Northwest. Um, then later I worked on the Ocoee River in Tennessee, and the Lehigh in Pennsylvania. Oh yeah the Snake River in Wyoming, and mm. finally, and, and some of these were multiple summers, and then I worked on the Colorado and the Green Rivers in Utah and Colorado. Mm, nice. So a, right, a wide variety of classes then, right? <laughs> yeah, mostly I think, I mean, because we were taking, you know, guests down the river with us, and uh, we, we, we didn't do anything too difficult. You know, back in the day, this was... And now it's more common for people to do class four and five in a raft, you know, with helmets and everything. But back then, I think there was a lot more, um, you know, the the liability was a lot um, different in and in getting insured for, you know, those, those kinds of uh, dangerous things were, were not as easy. So, um, yeah, they were mostly class three, maybe a few easy class fours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've done, I've done some threes and fours and I, I can't remember if I've done a five or not, but yeah, I mean, obviously you're talking about some nice adrenaline rushes there when you get into fours and fives. <laughs> right. And so kind of fast forward a little bit, how did you uh, find team river runner? Yeah. So um, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in the early probably 2001, 2002 timeframe. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having some, uh, some visual problems and it later turned out that I had optic neuritis and, um, they weren't sure why. So they did all these tests and, you know, finally gave me the diagnosis after more than a year and a half of, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And, um, so, you know, it, I have relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, which means, you know, I have periods of time where I'm not doing so well and other periods where I'm, I'm okay, you know, that I, I, I can, um, I manage quite well. And so, 
um, in the beginning of my diagnosis or right after my diagnosis, I was, I, I, I would say, you know, similar to most people who have been diagnosed later in life with a chronic illness. Um, you know, I was going through a, a grieving process. I, at least looking back, I can recognize that that's what it was, you know, and I, I had periods of, you know, deep depression and anxiety and I would have, um, a lot of symptoms related to my illness, you know, like weakness and fatigue and um, visual problems mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And so it really affected my mental health. And for a long time, I, uh, I well, I stopped paddling for a number of reasons, but but that was the primary reason. It's just my mental health was not in a good place. And I thought, I can't do this anymore, you know, and I just sort of gave up everything that I loved. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it took me several years to realize how it affected, you know, giving up something so much that I love so much, how it uh, really affected it, it, it exacerbated my mental health problems, you know, and, and so um, just that realization and I was walking through the VA one day and I saw a flyer for TRR, Team River Runner. And I, I started reading it and looking at the, the images and, you know, they were, they had images of blind people paddling and people with missing limbs. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if these guys can kayak down a, a river with big rapids, like what's, what's stopping me, you know, like it's, it's just my thoughts and telling myself that I can't do this anymore, you know, for whatever reason and feeling sorry for myself instead of like, you know, getting back up on the horse and, and riding. And so I decided to give it a shot and get back out on the river. And, you know, it was the best decision I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would expect it would be because I think it's, you know, it's just, uh, one, there's a lot about water. That's the reason why I asked you about the, the question about the water to begin with, because there's just, you know, water itself is just there. So therapeutic and obviously being out in nature and being outdoors has so much value, you know, to, to anyone, not, you know, whether you're having physical struggles or mental struggles or any other struggle, you know, being outside and, and, and active is, is very, very positive. And, and you mentioned that, you know, after, after, um, uh, after your military career, you went to the school. Is, is that where you studied the social work? Is that how you got into social work? Well, no, not initially. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I, I actually studied culture. Um, huh. And yeah, it, it's another interesting story, which could tie into the, the work that I do currently with diversity, equity, inclusion. But um, social work was kind of, uh, you know, I accidentally got involved in wilderness therapy mm -hmm. and and then residential treatment after that, working with uh, teenagers and addiction. And, you know, I, I just saw how, you know, for me, it felt really rewarding and um, felt good to serve again, right, to help others. And, and uh, so I started considering going back to school to get an, a master's in social work at that time. And, um, it kind of led me on an, another path of, you know, helping marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting how one thing leads to another and you find, you find your niche. Yeah. Well, 
Well, yeah, it's like a spider web, right? All of these different threads that kind of come together and and have mm-hmm. different components and and uh, that are all connected to each other in some way. So, uh, and, and you mentioned DEI. I know that you're on you're on our Move United's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. Uh, how how did you first get involved in kind of the work, the important work that about around DEI, and and what drives you in that space? Yeah, so um, you know, I I talked a lot about my involvement with Team River Runner, and in the early years, uh, I I was involved as a as a veteran participant, and and then I became a, a volunteer for my local. Uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. And then in about 2020, I think it was when we were all um, quarantined mm-hmm. and, and had a lot of time on our hands. Um, and, and it was right around the time too, when, you know, Maude Arbery and, and uh, uh, Brona Taylor and, and George Floyd were all murdered, you know, and there was kind of this like reckoning with race and in our country. And, uh, a few of us at TRR sort of got together and we were like brainstorming how we could increase the diversity and, um, you know, the, the inclusion and equity at team river runner, because we didn't see a whole lot of, uh, diversity with the folks, the veterans that we were serving, you know? And so mm-hmm. we formed a D D E and I task force or committee at team river runner and um, that was three years. Yeah, three years ago. And so I, after about a year and a half or so, I reached out to um, Move United because of our connection with Move United. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, uh, you know, have a discussion about what Move United was doing in this in, in this. Uh, in this field and, and, and sort of like try to figure out like if we're on the right track, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and have a conversation and, and, and uh, seek advice as well, you know? And so uh, that was when I met Carrie Miller Ortiz and um, we had some really good discussions and, and, you know, I, I consider her a friend and a mentor. Um, we've both, I think, um, helped each other out, you know, uh, in, in terms of, uh, the work that we do and she's given me some great inspiration and ideas. And then she invited me to join the task force, um, a little over a year ago. And it's been, um, such a fantastic like opportunity for me and I'm really grateful to to be serving on the on Move United's task force the EIA task force well you connected with a wonderful individual and, and a wonderful member of our team uh, so that I, I know that only good things can come out of, as a result of that and and speaking of uh Carrie and Carrie Miller Ortiz um mm-hmm. you two are co-presenting a workshop at the Move United leadership conference uh focused on disability justice so uh for those that are listening uh, tell me what what you know like if they if people aren't able to attend that workshop what are some of the kind of takeaways that you hope people will have uh, at the conference uh for your session uh 
sorry, just to clarify, are you are you asking for people that can't attend or can attend our our workshop? Yeah, if people aren't able to attend that workshop, what like um, just to kind of give maybe listeners that aren't able to attend the conference or the workshop, just what what kind of some what are some of the things that you all will will kind of discuss and talk about at that conference? So like a teaser? <laughs> yeah, a little teaser. Yeah, so I think um one I guess the biggest thing that we'd like to uh for people to take away is that oftentimes in working with uh you know in adaptive sports um or any kind of organization that serves uh folks with disabilities we tend to get very focused on a single issue struggle such as ableism mm-hmm. and what we don't often uh really ponder and and base our our um you know the for the work that we do i think needs to be approached through like a, a multi a multifaceted lens you know and taking into consideration all of the various identities mm-hmm. that we have as disabled people for example um i'm a transgender queer uh veteran and i happen to have a disability as well and so my experience uh my lived experience is very much like it's not only affected by the disability that I have, but um, my other marginalized identities, right? Like, you know, I experience discrimination sometimes and I experience like different treatment by different people if if they know that I'm transgender or some some other part of my identity, right? And so my experience is very different from say, um, a white male disabled person. And similarly, um, you know, a black disabled woman would have a very dis- different experience than a white male disabled person. So um, I, I we're, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the the connection between ableism and other forms of systemic oppression and how they work together. Um, I, I love the quote that Audre Lorde, um, she gave in a speech at Harvard University where she said, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle like able because we do not live single issue lives. Hmm. And um, yeah, I just think it's, it's really important for us to to have more of a focus on you know all of the all of the ways in which people experience um, oppression, discrimination, um, even accessibility, right? Like we talk about accessibility for disabled folks being you know access to public spaces, but a lot of times accessibility could mean you know that the space is unsafe, emotionally unsafe, psychologically unsafe, not welcoming. Um, so yeah, I think of accessibility as being much bigger than just physical accessibility. Yeah. And, and so it's, it almost goes back to that kind of reference around the webs, right? So it's all about intersectionality and that we all intersect with other people at different ways because of the different 
um, the differences that we all have. And I, and I often, when I, you know, when we talk about adaptive sport uh, and our podcast is called redefining disability. So when I talk about disability, you know, it's not a one size fits all, you know, I mean, uh, every, dis, every, every, every Ill, illness or injury or disability is different and has different effects on every mm-hmm. body. So that's just one component. And then if you add in, you know, who we are uh, ethnically or from a gender perspective or any other thing, then we're adding all kinds of uh, different things into the, into the pot, into the pot and stirring it up. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that we're having that conversation at the conference and I'm looking forward to looking forward to um, uh, being able to s- sit in on, on that as well. And, and I, I last, last thing I wanted to just ask you before I, I want to make sure there's nothing that we're leaving off the table, but I, you know, I think you're in Boise, Idaho now, right? Correct. Yeah. So I know it's an immense place with a lot of a wonderful recreational amenities. So how how is it? Uh, uh, what are you partaking in and enjoying besides probably some kayaking and other water sports? Are there other things that you're able to enjoy? What uh, being in Boise, Idaho? Um. Yeah. I I ski quite a bit. Um, yeah. And enjoy hiking and anything outdoors really. <laughs> um, and a, a couple, a couple of things I do, um, kind of recreationally. And also it's, it's kind of like a meditation for me is like some Taiko drumming. It's mm. a form of Japanese, um, drumming mm-hmm. that's very physical. Um, and also you, you, it's, it's like I say, it's very meditative, you know, because it's, um, you have to kind of get in the zone when you're drumming mm-hmm. and, and, and you, we drum together in an ensemble and we perform at different places. And so I, I kind of geek out on that once in a while too. And um, yeah. It allows you to explore your creative side, like you mentioned earlier, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My artistic side. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dane, is there anything that we've not uh, talked about that you want to you know mention? No, we've hit a lot. I think I can't really think of anything else at the moment. Well, that's awesome. Well, I hope people will, uh, you know, as since we did a little teaser for the conference, I hope people will check out the Move United Education Conference and, and particularly Dane and, and Carrie's uh, workshop. So, well, thank you for being my guest. Thank you. It was nice to meet you, Sean. <laughs>